Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It feels like every day now you read another story about some big antitrust investigation, some proposal to change things up. But a lot of people don't really understand how antitrust policy works uh, institutionally, legally, or historically. Uh, this interview I was able to do with Charlotte Slayman from Public Knowledge is really great. She's a real expert in this. She has done it as a practitioner and now as a policy analyst. And I think it's going to really help you understand like what the whole antitrust debate that we're having right now means. Uh, check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and I'm here today with Charlotte Slayman. She is a policy counsel at Public Knowledge, formerly an attorney in the uh, Anti-Competitive Practices Division of the Federal Trade Commission, here to tell us about antitrust, uh, the author of a great new report on this subject. So I'm, I'm going to start with like a like a dumb question. You know, I, I, I follow people talking all the time. And it's like, so some companies are really big. And if the president doesn't like that, they're like, they're too big. You can just like, you break them up, right? Teddy Roosevelt, he was a trust buster. And maybe we should, we should do that again. Is that, is that, that that's antitrust law? Is that, is that what you did at the FTC? Not quite. Oh. <laughs> Um, no, so there are two agencies that enforce the antitrust laws. It's not something that the president gets to decide. Um, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice has an antitrust division. Okay. So it is uh, not not just up to the president. These right. bureaucrats so, are making these decisions. So why are there two? Like that doesn't that seem weird? Yeah, it's sort of historical accident, and it's uh, still today leads to some difficulties. Um, okay. When a merger is coming down the pike, um, the FTC and the DOJ uh, may both be interested in it, and they may both argue that they have the sort of right to bring the case. So there's this whole clearance process where okay. basically one guy at the FTC and one guy at the DOJ sort of duke it out. But there's theoretically uh, some precedent about which types of industries go to which agency. Okay. Well, so actually, let's, let's spec this up because yeah. there, there has been like this, – there's not like a loose talk about breaking up this or that. But you immediately went to what I think is the actual day-to-day -day work of antitrust, which has a lot to do with merger approvals. Yes. So, so how does that work, right? So I've got a, a hardware store. You know, some other guys got one. We want to combine the businesses into like one hardware store. And what happens? So if you just own one hardware store and this other guy only owns one hardware store, it's unlikely that the government's going to get involved in that merger. So we're good. Yes, probably. Um, but if you're, you know, Home Depot and you want to buy uh, Lowe's, Lowe's, exactly. Um, if those companies are big enough, that's when you uh, the Hart Scott Rodino Act kicks in. Ah, the so, Hart Scott Rodino. I mean, what does big enough mean in that context? So there's a dollar amount. Um, okay. If your company is above a certain size, if if the transaction is above a certain size, um, then you have to get pre-approval from the government before you can merge. This is an important distinction. Yes. It is not actually approval. So you have to submit paperwork to the government before you can merge. Okay. But what they do is not approval. Okay. What what do they do? So okay, so I so I send my paperwork. We want to have our big, you know, housing supply merger happen. So I send you the paperwork and then and then what? So they'll review the industry, take a look at the industry, take a look at the two companies, 
Um, and if they think that there may be competitive concerns, they will send you what's called a second request, okay. uh, which is like a subpoena, basically, for more documents. And there's some statutory deadlines. They are, you know, have to do it within a certain time frame. Um, but what they're looking at mostly is, are these two firms uh, close competitors? Right. And how consolidated is the industry already? Okay. And so... You know, are they close competitors, right? I mean, we oftentimes, we do see companies that that seem like, in a pretty obvious, banal way, are close competitors, right? So Sprint and T-Mobile, these are both cell phone network operators. Uh, we had U.S. Airways and American Airlines, right? And, you know, they're both airlines. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of those mergers go through, right? So what, why, what, what, what makes that okay or not? Okay? So it could be that the agency doesn't consider the industry to be particularly consolidated yet. Okay. Some amount of consolidation is okay. Okay. And it could also be that there are efficiencies to the merger that the agencies believe are credible. So an example would be, I think, in the Sprint T-Mobile merger that's mm -hmm. happening now, they are arguing that... They're going to be able to do better 5G build-out by uh, combining the two firms. Okay. They have this kind of spectrum, and this the other one has a different kind of spectrum, and together they'll be able to do this thing better. Two beautiful spectrums right. coming together. Right. But so, well, well, it turns out, I want to be clear, there's sure. no truth to this argument. <laughs> well, we <laughs> should talk about that. the type of argument they make. Right. But so I, how about the, the concentration of the industry? Because this is like, you're sitting here, you could be like, well— just four companies control 80% of the market. And like, well, is that concentrated? Yes, Or is that is. not concentrated? <laughs> um, yeah, so the DOJ has these horizontal merger guidelines, okay. and they have actually an equation, uh, the Hirschman-Herfindahl Index, the nice. HHI, um, that allows them to identify what are concentrated markets and then also how much additional concentration would be caused by the merger. Okay. Um, but these are just guidelines, so it's really not quite that simple. Okay, but so but there is a, a mathematical yes, kind of yes. process that, that goes into it. So there's often a question in people's minds as to like what like, what is the market here, right? Yeah. So, like, I think there's been a fair amount of interest discussion of the the beer market, right, where there there was a big merger to form, uh, what's it, AB InBev. Yeah. And on the one hand, this one company now controls a, a very large share of the beer market. On the other hand, like, if you go to a normal store – there are a bunch of different beers there. I mean, some of it is all brands made by this one company. Exactly. But, but some of it is that, like, there's mass market beer, which InBev, you know, is like a lot of it. But, like, there's all these microbrewers everywhere. So is that a super concentrated industry or is it a really diffuse industry? So two things you would want to think about. One, when you're calculating the HSI, um, sort of the long tail of small mm -hmm. competitors doesn't have a huge impact. Okay. And I think that that's purposeful in the equation. Um, it's the the sum of the squares of the market shares. It's okay. got a nice sing-songy <laughs> ring to it. So the sum of the squares of the market can remember. shares. Yeah. Um, but the the point of that is, I think, part of the theory is that small companies don't have as much of an impact on the big companies. Huh. So the consolidation of the industry that really matters is of the larger companies. Right. So so and when you hear things right, the the Obama administration near its uh, tail end uh, put out this report saying there was increasing concentration, and that was based on these these HHIs. And the way that works is that if you say, oh, there's like a million like little whatevers, like there's 20,000 independent coffee shops, like that doesn't outweigh just one chain is like 90% of coffee. Yes, that's right. Under that framework, though, it seems like there should be a fair amount of skepticism about some of these kind of big mergers that have happened. And yes. yet- there hasn't necessarily been. I mean, I don't. I don't recall a lot of big mergers being being blocked recently. So what's what's going on? So uh, one thing is, I think a lot of the mergers that have happened recently have not been such obvious um, horizontal competitors. Okay. So um, you think about Amazon Whole Foods is one that people talk about a lot. Yeah, um, I've heard of those companies. Right. <laughs> 
So uh, in that case, the FTC, I think, did not even submit a second request. Hmm. Um, so they were, you know, pretty quickly able to figure out that they weren't concerned about this merger. And I think probably one of the big reasons is that Whole Foods is a grocery store and Amazon is an e-commerce marketplace. And those are not direct competitors. Right. So, so the basic thinking there is for like most stuff that you might buy at Whole Foods, you wouldn't really have gone to Amazon, right? Like you're not going to get like a whole chicken on Amazon. Right. And then most stuff that you might get in Amazon, you couldn't get at Whole Foods. And that's also, uh, th- there was a court case about AT&T and Time Warner, right? Which yeah. uh, did get challenged. But those are not direct competitors, right? In the same way, right? I can't, yes. I, I can't decide I'm not happy with my cell phone bill, so I'm going to go get HBO instead. Right. So an important distinction in antitrust law is horizontal competitors versus companies that have a vertical relationship. Okay. And vertical mergers can also be really problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, But antitrust, uh, unfortunately, has not taken vertical mergers as seriously as horizontal mergers for a long time. Okay. So so this is the spatial metaphor, right? Yeah. So, so, (laughs) so So a horizontal merger is like we're two companies and we're like the same. We're like yes. McDonald's and Burger King. Exactly. And a vertical merger is I'm like McDonald's and a company. A beef producer. Right. Okay. Yes. So like somewhere somewhere else in the supply chain. Right. So when you say it hasn't been taken as seriously, like what, what does that mean? So I think it's sort of easier to model the economics of a horizontal merger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty clear you can do this HHI calculation. You see that if, my, if uh, McDonald's wants to buy Burger King, you're going to have a problem. But it's a little harder to do that economic modeling for if McDonald's wants to buy a beef producer. Some ranches. Right. It's a more complicated equation. And there may also be uh, benefits to competition of that. You right. know, there may be um, real efficiencies. Right. Okay. So here, here's where we get into the the efficiencies rationale, right? So so one thing I, I remember was back when um, it was AT&T and T-Mobile wanted to merge. And they put out a lot of sort of public-facing information about why this was a good idea. And one of the things they said was that there weren't going to be any uh, job losses. And I, I remember my, my, my uncle's a, an antitrust economist, and he, he was telling me, he was like, oh, they think that's smart, but like that's actually really bad. Because the way he explained it was that if you were to say to the courts or the Justice Department, look, the reason we want to do this merger is it's going to let us fire like a ton of people, that they would have said, OK, well, that's a valid reason to do it. That's considered an efficiency. Right. Yeah. Because I think that's what people don't – so like because companies merge presumably because they'll be more profitable. And so like one reason it might be more profitable to merge is because you're going to be able to like screw over consumers. Right. And the yes. efficiencies is you're, if you can produce some other good reason. Right. Right. So like what wh- what kind of examples of that d- do we have? So if you think about uh, Amazon Whole Foods, right. right, Amazon has this uh, great distribution network. Um, they have a ton of services for businesses mm-hmm. and they can provide those services now more efficiently to Whole Foods if they own Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. Another common one is that your incentives will be aligned. Okay. And there's there's other efficiencies that are similar to firing people. Uh-huh. Like you can uh, consolidate your people in one office. Sure. Um, you can close a retailer that you have across the street and not pay rent on it. All mm-hmm. kinds of efficiencies that uh, you can have when you right. Work. So you can, so you can use your physical equipment more yeah. more efficiently. And in the technology space, right? So like one thing now that Amazon and Whole Foods are merged, right? When I go to Whole Foods, they ask me if I'm an Amazon yes. Prime member right, and I scan you. my little thing, right? So there's some kind of data hijinks happening there, right? And and with these tech companies, they want more data. And so that's a a reason to merge. Yes. Um so I think what economists are learning about the mm-hmm. usefulness of data is that the more you have, there's significant synergies. Mm-hmm. So if Amazon just knows about your online purchasing habits, it's really useful to them to get some information about your brick-and-mortar purchasing habits. Mm-hmm. And the idea of these efficiencies is that it could be good for everyone, right? I mean, it can sound – you can make anything sound bad. But it's like, <laughs> oh, they want to fire everybody. Oh, they want to close these stores. Or like, oh, they're going to like be this panopticon that knows everything about me. But at least the theory is that this this could be good. Yes. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. The idea that efficiencies could be really important, right, has sort of came in at a specific historical moment, right? Yeah. So the consumer welfare standard uh, is getting a lot of attention these days. It's something people talk about. It's something people talk about. Um, So it was coined by Robert Bork in uh, the antitrust paradox back in the 70s. Um, and so this is Robert Bork, who people probably know from, yes, from their their, their Watergate podcasts or or whatever else. Right. But he was like his academic specialty is antitrust law. Yes. So the consumer welfare standard basically says, um, what antitrust is focused on is efficient markets and, uh, not a lot else. But I mean, specifically what, as opposed to what? So sometimes you have cases where antitrust regulators and courts are asked to consider things other than efficiency. Right. So there's a line of cases about, you know, should they consider health and safety? Mm -hmm. Um, And antitrust law pretty definitively decided, no, we should not. Okay. It's, you know, I think about a cigarette merger, right? There were these cigarette company mergers Uh and you're sort of torn as an antitrust regulator how you want to deal with a cigarette company merger because the goal of antitrust is actually to increase output and lower prices and and have a higher quality cigarette. Uh And is that really what we want? It's not. Um, But it's not the job of the antitrust enforcers to be making those kinds of decisions, right? That should be left up to healthcare regulators Uh and and people who actually focus on that stuff. But then I feel like one that you you sort of hear a fair amount is suppliers, right? So, like, I I think I've seen a number of different presidential candidates talking about, like, chicken processing, right? And, And the point that they seem to me to be making is that this is a situation that's bad for chicken farmers. But bad for chicken farmers could be in some sense, efficient. I don't think so. So the consumer welfare standard is not supposed to only be about consumers. Okay. It is also supposed to consider the impact on suppliers. Oh, interesting. So you could have a monopsony situation. That's where it's basically a monopoly, but it's a monopoly of a buyer instead of a monopoly of a seller. Uh So if you have all of these chicken... Uh, farmers, and they have to sell only to, I don't know as much about agriculture, but they have to sell only to Purdue maybe or something. Um, That would be monopsony power. Okay. And that is taken very seriously by the antitrust laws, and and, um, that's supposed to be part of the consumer welfare standard. But even though, but those aren't consumers, are they? Right. 
it's sort of a misnomer. Okay, so so Bork becomes prominent about this in the 1970s, and the antitrust statutes are considerably older than that. So, like, what what had been going on previously? Well, the statutes are written very broadly. Okay. And so it leaves a lot of room for um, judges to make fact-specific determinations. Okay. It leaves a lot of room for economic learning. And that's supposed to be a benefit is that, um, you know, we'll learn more about economics over time uh-huh. and, and that ought to be able to be incorporated into antitrust law. So what does that mean? They're, they're written broadly. Uh, the the text is very broad. Um, so it says things like any combination or uh, collection of companies. Right. And it, and they're like, I, I mean, compared to modern laws, they're like they're short. Yes. Yes. Right? They're extremely that's, short. That's what lawyers mean by broad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. There's not a lot of detail. The the Hirsch, Hirschman-Herfindahl index isn't in there. Um, they're right. very broad. Right. So So the laws don't say like – the attorney general shall do this in the event that this and that and the other thing, right, with like right. all these details, right? Where there's a lot of, you know, if you look at the the Affordable Care Act, right, like yes. people would go up there and be like, this law is like 80 billion pages long, right? And the Sherman Antitrust Act is not like that. Like you could, as a lay person at home, go online, print it out, read it. You would probably now not actually understand how antitrust law works. (laughs) But the words are comprehensible English. Yep. But that's a strategy, right? Uh I mean, the Affordable Care Act needed to be long because Congress wanted to be very specific about what they wanted to happen. Yes. And I think part of the purpose of leaving the Sherman and the Clayton Acts very broad uh, was that they wanted to leave this open for future knowledge to be incorporated. Right. But so then when we say like these standards and stuff have have changed over time, it's not that Congress came in and passed a law right. saying that's an important point. We want consumer welfare. It's that judges and economists guideline writers sort of changed their minds, right? Yes. And it's also, I think, a lot of it came from academics. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear a lot of talk about the University of Chicago um, it was really a concerted effort by conservative judges, but also academics and uh, government lawyers and economists right. to narrow antitrust law. Right. So, so that was my question: is like, what what was it that they were reacting against? Like, what was the I don't know what like '50s, '60s antitrust practice that they thought was was somehow problematic? Well, they talk about it a lot today, still. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, the the sort of history that they tell is that during the 50s and 60s, antitrust really sort of got out of line, uh, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Um, they talk about some cases like uh, the A&P grocery stores. Ah, A&P grocery stores. <laughs> is one that comes up a lot. Um, and just say that antitrust was really unmoored from uh, more specific guidelines. Um, but I don't agree with this okay. perspective. <laughs> there are a lot of areas of the law where we don't have equations that tell us the answer. And uh-huh. that doesn't mean that there's no uh, guidelines and no predictability for businesses. Um, they're supposed to have this sort of flexibility. And I think it's fine. <laughs> right. But so but so, so, that's one of the things that changed, though, right, was to try to make it more um, – Technical. Yes. Right. And predictable. And predictable. So mm-hmm. that you could look at what was going on. I mean, as you're saying, right? So, like horizontal versus vertical, right? So, like if you look just at horizontal mergers and then you just put numbers into an equation, you have a very a technical yep. kind of process. Whereas if you say, okay, well, we need to look at a more broader set. Of impacts, you have what, like human judgment? Yeah, but that's like many areas of the law. <laughs> right. um, and these people are experts, right? I mean, I, I worked among them for four years. Uh-huh. They they know what they're doing. But so that's like, I guess, important. I think for normal people to understand part of the the background of this, right, is that a lot of areas of regulation involve a lot of judgment. Antitrust, there had been a push to evolve it into this kind of judgment-free 
space. And there can both be like an argument on the merits about this, but also just kind of, I don't know, like in people's soul, right? I mean, that that some people, some some culture or institutional cultures just evolve where they're like, well, we we really like this, right? Because we have now this like expertise that we can we can offer and it's objective versus we're just a bunch of, I don't know, like politicians yelling about things, right? I guess. I think many agencies, you mm-hmm. know, have discretion. Right. Um, and I wouldn't say they're politicians yelling about things, right? <laughs> like they they take uh, the facts into consideration. They look at past cases and see what's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, the FTC does a lot of um, studies of how past mergers have turned out. Mm-hmm. This is called merger retrospectives. Um, so there's a lot of knowledge uh, to base these right. decisions on. How have past mergers worked out? Um, not great. <laughs> um, well, that seems bad. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's wide variation. Um, sure. I'm sure some have been fine. Exactly. Um, but no, there there's a great study uh, that came out, I think, in 2013 by John mm-hmm. Quoka, and he mm-hmm. looks at uh, mergers that the agencies allowed to go through because mm-hmm. they determined that there were unlikely to be competitive concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and he found that in many of those markets, prices actually did go up and there was less competition. Okay. And so that's the sort of the like the hard core of competition concern is prices go up. I guess it's the hardcore. It's right, not the only thing. Right. I think it's important to to state that because a lot of times people sort of lose sight of the other important priorities of antitrust and say, oh, it's all just about price. It's right. not all about price. But I mean, what his study is saying, right, is like the, the least controversial thing. Yeah, exactly. Right, is that you don't want right. a bunch of people in a market to all get together and raise prices, right? And he's saying- Well, and they may not be getting together, right? That's a different violation <laughs> if they get together and raise prices. Okay, sure, right. But- um, Right, so right, so so that's like what uh, price fixing, right? That's yes. like if if five different independent companies have like a secret phone call and they're like, ah, we're going to raise prices, right? Right. But, but also you could just merge, right? And you say, ah, there's no more competition. We're going we're gonna to raise the prices. Right. And, I mean, even if you're not merging to monopoly, if you're just merging to like a three-firm market, mm-hmm. there is definitely a greater chance of prices going up without a secret phone call. Uh-huh. Uh, this is called coordinated effects. Okay. And economists know that when you have fewer firms in an industry, you're more likely to have higher prices, lower quality, mm-hmm. um, all of these things, not because they're calling each other up to collude, but just because they don't have to compete as hard. Right. So it's like if you have a thousand different people, then they're going to compete prices down really, really low. Exactly. If there's only three, like they probably won't. Yep. But so how do you ascertain, like, like what is the the market, right? Because like Coke competes with Pepsi, but like also you could drink coffee, you could drink water, you could, I don't know. Yeah, this is the key question in most merger cases, Okay, how to define the market. So if I want to merge, I'm going to tell you, whatever, man, like everybody's got tap water. There's like yes. an infinite realm of competition. Exactly. Leave me alone. Yes. Um, so the key thing that the lawyers will look at at the FTC or DOJ mm-hmm. is uh, substitutability. Okay. So it's exactly like you were saying, you know, people drink Coke, but they also drink water. Um, so you would talk to uh, the buyers. And in this case, it might be consumers. But right. in a lot of the industries that we look at, there are corporate buyers. Sure. Um, and you would talk to them and see, is this really substitutable for you or not? Okay. And we have, you know, sort of questions that we ask to try to ascertain that. And and I mean, that seems like an area where some amount of judgment yes. inherently winds up well, getting in, right? I mean, because like it, on some theoretical level, like you could always substitute something, right? Yeah. But this is also a place where economics really gets involved. Okay. Um, so one of the questions that we usually ask is, if the price of this product were to increase by 5 to 10%, mm-hmm. what would you do? Would okay. you keep buying the product? Would you switch to an alternative? Which alternatives would you switch to? 
um, and just sort of hear how the buyer thinks about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And that's called the SNP test, which is a small but significant non-transitory increase in price. Okay. (laughs) Um, And it's usually 5 to 10%. Okay, okay. You know, so I can can imagine a situation where it's like, I don't know what, like all, all, say all the oatmeal makers, they merge and prices go up a little bit. And then the retail stores are like, well, we're going to, we're going to stock Cheerios instead. And it's not like I'm going to not eat breakfast or, or something like that, but like I might still be bummed out. Yeah. So quality also matters. This is why it's not all about price. Okay. Um, so the buyer of the product might say, you know, actually a five to 10% increase in price is not enough to make me switch from oatmeal to Cheerios. Mm -hmm. I prefer oatmeal because it's healthier or it's hot or, you know, (laughs) that's when you really learn about whether Mm -hmm, these mm -hmm. products are actually substitutable or not. Right. So, so, so it's, it's prices are nice to measure, but not the, the sort of the whole deal. Yeah. That's a really important point. Okay. Let's, let's talk about some some controversies. Great. Okay. Um, so we mentioned Sprint and T-Mobile before, right? And so this has been uh, an area where we've had um, a merger blocked. We've had a lot of sort of political competition. There's a credible amount of like 5G, like hype, uh, you know, ads and, and weird stuff going on. So what, what's happening with these companies and, and this market? Like what's, what's, what's the deal with my cell phones? Yeah, so there's really only four competitors um, for cell phone service. Right. It's Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon. Right. And there's some MVNOs, uh, okay. which are, uh, you know, you might see ads for Cricket or mm-hmm. Boost or whatever. They are just buying from these four companies. So right. it's really, and some of, many of them are owned by those companies. Right, so. so there's only four companies that like actually own exactly. cell towers yes. and whatever. And then there's... Brands and resellers and and things like that. And so, and two of them are big and two of them, right? So, so like AT&T and Verizon are really, really big. Sprint and T-Mobile are like medium big and they want to merge. Yes. So Sprint and T-Mobile are, I think, pretty clearly each other's closest competitors. Mm -hmm. So that makes it even more concerning than if it was just sort of four equal competitors going down to three, which is already pretty concerning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But knowing that these two are really the closest competitors, it seems like they compete more for the low-income segment of the market. They are the ones that are actually offering lower prices. Okay. So it's really concerning to see that they might merge. Um, they might start to behave more like AT&T and Verizon and and charge higher prices. Right. So this is like, okay, common sense, yeah. right? Okay, there's only four. There's not, there's like really not a lot of substitutability, right? I'm not going to like use Ravens or, or whatever <laughs> instead. And so they're going to go four, they want to go to three. So So why doesn't this just get sort of like left out of hand? I mean, I assume these companies have their own lawyers, consultants, something like that. They They think there's some chance this is going to get approved or or they wouldn't bother. Yeah. Um, And what do they have to say for themselves? So there's definitely a a phenomenon recently of mergers that, uh, this is a quote from someone else, I forget who, but should not have left the boardroom. Okay. Um, So I think you're absolutely right that it's the type of merger that, you know, should obviously not even be at this stage. Um, But they do it anyway to find out. Okay. Um, Just for fun? (laughs) So they they make some arguments. Um, they argue this this five G claim that we talked about before. They argue that they'll do better rural build out. Okay. They argue well. They they're not really arguing that they're going to close stores because they're trying to have it both ways, as sure. you described before. <laughs> There's not going to be any job losses. Um, but their main arguments are that we will commit not to lower prices or okay. not to raise prices. Sure. Um, even though the economics shows that they probably will raise prices. Okay. Um, and that commitment is really weak and riddled with holes. They they set up this commitment with loopholes. Okay. Even if it weren't for the loopholes, uh, it's unlikely to be effectively enforced. Right. Um, and it's sort of an acknowledgement that they are going to have the ability to raise prices. Right. So they're basically trying to say, okay, we like pinky swear, cross my heart, hope to die. We're not going to raise prices. Instead, what we're going to do is we will exert our greater like scale to build, like build more stuff. Right. right. Because, because but the we, economics doesn't support that. Right. 
Okay, because I mean, I think this is an important part of their sort of public facing argument. I think, you know, people on the Hill, people wherever, journalists, like you might buy into this. It, it sort of makes sense, right? So it's like, well, building 5G infrastructure, I mean, whatever that is, uh, but it's new, right? So new technology comes along. In this case, it's not software, right? It's physical stuff. It's a pain in the ass to build a whole giant nationwide mobile phone network. And so maybe one big company would be able to do that, you know, more speedily than two medium-sized companies. But that's just relying on their sort of largesse, right? They're uh-huh. not saying that the economics will change such that it will suddenly be profitable for us to do this. They're just saying we're going to have more money from charging <laughs> consumers more, and don't worry, we'll spend it on these good things. Yeah, I, oh, and I mean, I think this is important because, you know, people sometimes get suspicious of economics. Um, but I find that this style of argument where companies would like sort of policymakers to believe that the amount of money that they like have lying around is the limiting factor in their ability to invest is really important, right? And and economics says that's not how it works, that if it's profitable to build the network, you will build it. Or if it's required by law. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, if it's if it's less competitive, do they become like more or less likely to want to go invest in the future? Less likely. Because they the reason that companies do things that are good for consumers is mm-hmm. because of competition, because it's the only way that people will choose their product, because there are plenty of competitors that people can choose instead. So right now, Sprint and T-Mobile have a sort of inferior network probably to AT&T and Verizon. They offer lower prices in exchange. But if they fall further behind in in network quality, they would either need to cut prices or need to invest to sort of support it, right? And if the level of competition declines, then they have less reason that they need to make those investments. Exactly. So that's sort of part of the, the broader argument about why competition matters, right, is not just sort of narrowly on the consumer side, but but more broadly for these kind of these kind of investment type decisions. Yes. Competition is the best way to have companies doing good things. Okay. Um and and competition in that sense, how does that tie into um you were talking about vertical mergers. And you said that you didn't think they had been taken seriously enough. And so so what, what what does that mean? What would taking them more seriously look like? So we talked about the horizontal merger guidelines. Right. There are actually also non-horizontal merger guidelines, sort okay. of vertical merger guidelines. They're extremely old, and everyone agrees that they're not really applicable anymore. Okay. Um, so one thing that you hear antitrust insiders talk about is maybe having some new vertical merger guidelines. No, I hear this all the time. Yeah. People, people, but this is like, you know, people are getting jazzed up. They're like, well, we should write some new guidelines. But okay, but like what what would they say? Yeah. So I, I think the biggest problem in vertical mergers is when you have a company that is really reliant on another company and then Let's use an example. Okay. So the big one that I always think about is the NBC Comcast merger. Okay. Um, This is when I was working in the Senate for Al Franken, and we were really upset about the NBC Comcast merger. It's sort of how I learned about antitrust law. Okay. So um, Comcast is the cable company. Right. And they have many channels that they will serve to consumers. And they have to have a business relationship with each of those channels in order to serve it to consumers. Mm -hmm. So they're paying those channels for the content. Um, And then Comcast wanted to buy NBC, which is one of those channels. Right. Um, So – I mean, not just one, right? Right. Yes. Good point. It was already a media conglomerate. (laughs) So, no, I mean, it's important, right? So, so NBC Universal was – I should add, NBC Universal is one of several investors in Vox Media, which is the producer in some sense of this podcast. Full disclosure. There you go. So, pre-merger – NBC Universal is this kind of conglomerate of a movie studio, some television production companies, um, NBC, the like TV channel you've seen, but then also a bunch of other like hodgepodge group of cable networks, right? right. I think like Bravo, um, so, some other ones. Um, so 
then a a cable company, which like they own like the wires that go around everywhere um, in many right. markets. Yep. They wanted to buy this media conglomerate. Yes. So the way that competition ought to work theoretically is that all these channels are competing to be shown on that cable network. And there are other cable networks that they can compete to be shown mm-hmm. on. Um, and that would be a lot of competition. That would be great. Um, but if the if the cable network starts to own a lot of channels, mm-hmm. um, that gives them a lot of power in the negotiations with the remaining channels that they don't own okay. because they no longer need those channels as much as the channel needs the cable company. Okay. And so that was the question posed by that merger was, could it hurt competition? Um, I guess the decision was made that it was fine. And, well, not quite. And since they've invested in Vox Media, it's all great, right? <laughs> uh, so it's not quite fair to say the decision was made that it was fine, right? Okay. I mean, they did settle. Um, so they did, I think, file a complaint. And okay. there was a settlement. And there were a lot of conditions of the merger that DOJ required uh, Comcast to follow for 10 years. Okay. So uh, this is, I guess, yeah, worth, worth spelling out, right? So we were talking about you, you sort of apply for... Pre-approval, um, agencies look at it. They might not give it to you. One thing that might happen is like a spectacular court battle. Right. Um, but the other thing that might happen is a settlement. Yeah. So lawsuits settle all the time. Lawyers yes. prefer to settle their lawsuits because litigation is very expensive. And the antitrust agencies also try to settle cases when they can. Yeah. So why do they, though? Because like normally people settle lawsuits because it's expensive. Um, but I don't know. The government... Doesn't I mean I don't they gotta they're paying their staff one way or the other. Like why not why <laughs> why not why lot, not give us in the media an entertaining court battle? There's to cover? a lot of work that the staff could be doing other than bringing this litigation. Uh, so they also have to conserve resources just like private plaintiffs do. But so this means one sort of policy question you can ask is just the funding for the agencies, right? I mean, I think people don't talk a lot about the nitty-gritty of agency funding, right? But like the fewer fiscal resources an agency has, the more likely it is to feel like it needs to do settlements rather than pursue litigation. I mean, the same as anybody else, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And so, okay, so so what 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 kind of thing did they agree to with, with Comcast and NBC? So I think the key problem was that the conditions were time limited. Okay. So mergers are not time limited, right? Right. Mergers are forever. So uh, we recently had uh, some of the conditions uh, ended. Okay. So another part of the merger that we didn't talk about was um, the role of Hulu, right? Okay. So the cable company is also, for many people, their internet company. And so online video is – competitor to um, cable television in some ways. Right. And um, so the the condition was that Comcast could not exercise authority over Hulu, even though it was getting an ownership stake in Hulu. Because Hulu was part owned by NBC. Right. So one of the conditions was that Comcast could not exercise its new ownership of NBC to exercise part ownership of Hulu to try to somehow scuttle it. Yeah. But that came off. Yes. And so, I mean, why why would you agree to a time-limited uh, conduct remedy when something lasts forever? Yeah. So the theory is that technology and the market will change, and it's hard to predict what's going to be going on 10 years from now. So we don't want to be today uh, saying that this company, you know, in 20 years, we don't know what the market will look like, mm-hmm. has to be stuck with some particular rules. Okay. Um, But again, this is a situation where you would just rather have competition (laughs) Uh Uh, because, of course, it's difficult to predict what's going to be going on in 20 years. But we can we can say now that more competition will be better. So one of the things that that struck me about that merger is that I don't know if this is good law or technical economics, but it feels like some kinds of businesses can be like very, very, very competitive, right? Like there's like a lot of restaurants, right? And no force on earth is going to have there be as many cable companies as there are restaurants, right? It's just not, it's unrealistic. And you can sort of, to have companies from a relatively uncompetitive 
industry, like getting into other industries, seems troubling, right? That like cable channels seems like like maybe a middle ground between restaurants and physical cable infrastructure, right? Like there there could be there could be a lot, right? But they've tended to merge to form these little kind of conglomerates. But you you're ultimately like, I don't know, is this right? Like infecting other more competitive sectors by having these infrastructure companies get in on them? Um I think so. So I think what you're saying is you might have, you know, if we stipulate that cable channels is a competitive market. Right. But I think the consolidation in cable is already kind of infecting the cable channels. Okay. So there's definitely a a known phenomenon in antitrust that mergers beget more mergers. Okay. Um, So you hear this uh, from in in healthcare markets a lot. Uh They'll say, well, this industry that I have to work with all the time is getting so consolidated, so now I also need this merger in order to have fair negotiations with them. Okay, so that's like... The insurance companies negotiate with the hospitals. Yeah. And if you go from five hospitals to three hospitals, then the insurance companies might say, well, I need to go from three insurance companies to two insurance companies. Yeah, or vice versa. Right. Right. So it's just like tit for tat, right? It's like there's multiple sectors in the supply chain, and as one of them gets more consolidated. And we had a, a P- Peter Kafka wrote a, a piece for us, and it was about media company mergers. And he was saying, like, well, the media companies are getting uh, are, are merging. They feel they need to get bigger because they're competing with the technology companies, um, which you know themselves are sort of uh, consolidated. And you know whether that makes sense to let people get away with or not. No, it does not. I mean, it's something. The way I think of it is, we need to be conscious of that when evaluating a merger today. Think about what's going to happen in the future, okay? Um, and and consider that as a potential competitive harm that now you're going to see more mergers. Okay, right. So, I mean, this is a an area where you could say we need to look maybe like a little bit outside the the, the math, right? That like, or or you, I maybe you you just look at a broader set of mathematical questions, yeah, right. But that like you can keep saying yes to mergers because other mergers have happened in the past. And then the next thing you know, it's like every industry is very consolidated. Yep. What can you do about it? Like if something, you know, so Comcast and NBC already merged, right? Like that that already happened. Um, And we've already had a lot of consolidation on the channel side, uh, healthcare, I think. There's like so many cities where the hospitals have already merged. Like is there any, is is there hope? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I do think antitrust is largely focused on maintaining competition. Right. So it's a little tricky to use antitrust in these markets that already don't have a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still, you know, you want to protect potential entry. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to be very conscious of nascent competitors, potential competitors, and how they are being treated by the large incumbents. Okay. But I really think what we need is going to be um, legislation and regulation targeted at specific industries that we think are too concentrated and setting up some pro-competition rules rather than relying on the antitrust laws. Okay. So uh, this is a sort of important uh, distinction, right? So, okay. So this is rhetorically whatever you're saying, okay, we need new intervention in these kind of markets. And you're saying we don't want to rely on the sort of existing antitrust institutions and and statutes and and so why why is that right I, there's this I, I I think like like an image of like trust busting as like what antitrust is for yeah so uh, two reasons one antitrust law as we've discussed um, has been really narrowed over time mm-hmm. and has a lot of limitations on what it can realistically achieve okay um you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, using antitrust law to break up companies. Right. Um, that's probably what the trust busting yes. idea is. Um, and that is still considered by the courts a very severe remedy. It has to sort of be related to the harm that was caused. Um, 
And that's, of course, if you can actually um, show that there was some anti-competitive conduct by mm-hmm. a company that has enough market power. You know, there's a whole a whole process that mm-hmm. you have to do, um, and then achieving a remedy of significant divestitures to be called a breakup is just really difficult legally. Okay, so it's like so. We- even if you wanted to go take a case and say, okay, I don't like this one thing that went on and I think that reflects the like large size and scope and power of this company, the likely outcome would be like a fine. Um, not a fine necessarily, but it would be some other type of remedy. Right. Um, so and and we have done some thinking about what are the types of remedies that might be useful that a court might actually be willing to mm-hmm. impose. Um and it really depends on the industry, but it could be, you know, duties to deal with competitors, mm-hmm. uh, non-discrimination because the companies that rely on you might one day grow up to become competitors, mm-hmm. those types of things. But the point is it would the, – the legal system sort of defaults to a less yes. drastic right. kind of thing, right? So like asking the courts to impose it's, – it's, it's like a death penalty type scenario right where anyway i wouldn't think of it like that actually i think that's important the court should look at how to solve the competitive problem Mm -hmm. and if breaking up the company is the way that you're going to solve that competitive problem then the court should even under current law impose that result it's not intended to be a penalty for wrongdoing sure right the idea is we want competitive markets and this is the best way to achieve that but in practice that that's difficult it's, yes. a, it's a high bar to climb. Yes. So, so like you're saying legislation in specific sectors. So like what, what kind of sectors are we talking about? Well, I'm particularly interested in digital platforms. Absolutely. Um, so a, a lot of times people don't know what digital platforms means. Um, it's, it means Google and Facebook. <laughs> uh, and probably Amazon. There's a lot of different companies. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, places that have sort of one-to-many communications, transactions, um, platforms where you can do that stuff. Right. So this is, uh, I mean, a a lot of what the technology sector is uh, about, right, is it has made it easier to collect, like, tons of customers from all over the place onto a single uh, marketplace, social network, search engine, something something like that. And they tend toward... I don't want to make a, a, a pejorative term about it, but there's a there's a sense in which like scale begets scale. Yes, in a lot of these sectors, because you want to be on the same platform where other people are. That's exactly. like a genuine benefit. Yep. You wouldn't want there to be actually 17 different search engines necessarily, because they use the data to improve the product, right? But then it means a lot of competition questions start to arise. The way I would describe it is a little different. There are network effects Mm -hmm. that um, make everybody want to be on one platform together. Okay. Um, But I think the idea that you don't actually want competition isn't quite right. Okay. Um, That depends on some uh, sort of foundational conditions that you're assuming. Okay. Um, you know, we could say, I don't want there to be four different cell phone networks because I can't call, you know, if I have Sprint, I can't call someone on AT&T. Now I have to have four different phones. Ah. We know that that's not true because we have interoperability between the cell phone networks. Um, so I think we can change the laws to make a situation where competition could happen and okay, still yeah, be that, good for consumers. That's a great example, right? So, so network effects is the idea that like, you want to be on Facebook because other people are on Facebook. A social network with no people on it would be useless. Right. But so then you're saying, okay, right. So like I I, I use T-Mobile, which as we discussed is the cheaper cell phone network, but fewer people are on it. But and I you can, don't care. But I can still call everybody. Right. And that's not like the magic of the marketplace. That's rules. Yes. Right. I mean, like we have like there's a established body of – phone company regulations dating back to to the dawn of time. Right. And we could have something in the digital sector. Yes. So communications regulation, I think, is a great place for us to look and learn from um, for making new regulations for the tech sector because it also is governed by network effects. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've dealt with a lot of the difficult issues that we're dealing with here. Not always in the best way, but, but we can learn from that. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. 
But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. When you say communications, is like this is like the FCC yes. exists, right? It's like a, a starting place, right? So there's a defined set of companies or industry activities, right? Where if, if you want to do that, you are like under this regulatory umbrella. Yes. Whereas lots of other activities, you're just like, I mean, some like, anarchy, right? But there's no like agency overseeing the technology, the digital platform sector. Right. And I think a lot of the problems that we have seen in many different industries um, throughout this sort of last 40 years when people talk about antitrust getting narrowed and narrowed Mm -hmm. has also been less and less regulation. Um, So I think those are both responsible for the problem and both need to be used to address the problem. Okay. But but this is, I I guess, interesting because part of what you're saying is like maybe don't rely on the antitrust hammer to hit every nail. Yes. Um, so, so what would that like? What, what would that mean for the 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 tech sector? Like, what or digital platforms? Like, yeah. how how could you define that? Yeah. So, uh, my colleague Harold Feld has actually written a whole book on this. Well, so, um, you can check it out at digitalplatformact.com. Um, <laughs> but he, you know, has looked at how we regulated communications industries mm-hmm. and. Um, I think non-discrimination, like I mentioned before, is a really important part of this. So what does that mean, non-discrimination? So um, I think one of the complaints that you hear is um, companies are concerned about Google search. You know, so many users go to Google search trying to decide where to go next Mm -hmm. to buy a product. Um, And they want to make sure that their product is or their website is being ranked fairly as compared to Google's own sites. Okay. They don't want all of the Google responses to that search to be at the top and their response to be pushed down. So you could have a non-discrimination regime that says, you know, you can't preference your own websites in search. Okay, right. So, I mean, discrimination is like, well, it's sort of ubiquitous in the business world, right? I mean, if you fly on American Airlines, they are going to push on you like American Airlines co-branded credit cards, right? I mean, and it's common sense, right? That they're just like, they're doing their business, they're doing their thing. Yeah. So um, this is the tricky thing about a non-discrimination standard. Right. Um, and this is why you need a whole uh, regulator, a whole digital platform act uh-huh. right, that uh, creates some kind of regulator. Um, to address these difficult questions. I think Google could argue, you know, we're not putting our map result at the top of the search results page. It's just that a map is an important part of a modern search engine. Sure. And so we're not preferencing our own products. This is just all one product. Right. But this is where the competition concern sort of comes in, right? Because it's like if there were 17 search engines and people were using them all the time, you might say – well, look, we got to let these guys kind of do whatever, try to figure it out. Because after all, if you didn't like Google search results, you would just go, like people could just go use another search engine if it, if it was delivering a bad product. Well, but the, the concern here is not necessarily that users wouldn't like it. Mm. It's that uh, there are there's more than one type of user on Google, right? There's okay. there's people who are typing in a search, but then there's also people who are relying on Google to show their websites to me, to uh-huh. to a regular user. Right. And, and but this is where you get into a question about I guess it's not consumer welfare versus other things, but it's it's how wide of a scope are you looking at, right? Cuz it's so it's a free product, right? So the concern 
about discriminatory use would have to be something other than like my web search is going to become expensive. Yes. So I think this concern about the products being free and uh-huh. so antitrust I mean what what I hear sometimes maybe this isn't what you're saying is that because the products are free antitrust like doesn't know what to do and can't yeah. handle it. <laughs> there we go. That's that's what I'm saying. Okay. I you don't, can't handle it. I don't think that's right. <laughs> no. Um no, so antitrust is supposed to be considering quality. Uh-huh. It's supposed to be considering consumer choice. These are mm-hmm. part of the consumer welfare standard. It's not just about consumer mm-hmm. prices. Um, and I think where competition is really happening in in these free uh, products, uh, quote unquote free, I'm doing uh-huh. the quotes in the okay. audio medium, <laughs> um, is actually around quality. And quality can be difficult for consumers to measure mm-hmm. if the key quality uh, indicator that they're being that they're competing on is privacy. Right. The information about what privacy costs you are paying to use this service is in this privacy policy that no one can understand or take the time to read, mm-hmm. which is not their fault, right? They're they're sure. intended that way. Um, so I think economists understand this and um, the agencies can handle it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I was trying to say, though, is it's not that the that, that price is the only thing that you might consider, but that part of what we might worry about is can startup companies like exist and thrive or does everything become vertically integrated? That like because Google built the best search engine, they now backwards integrate everything in the universe and eventually we stop having, I don't know, just like a like a free sky to to have new companies sort of come into existence for. And that, I don't know, I mean, it strikes me, I mean, of course, in the long run, like things being good is good for consumers and things being bad is bad for consumers. But it it, it seems, it strikes me that that would be sort of like abusing the concept of consumer welfare, but that you're really talking about, I don't know, like innovation. That if, if people find things through, search engines that like we just need to be concerned about the openness of that. So I think that's a really important concern. You definitely want to have a situation where a new startup can thrive. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that is the key way that innovation happens. Right. Um I think if you are relying on large incumbents to do your innovation, you might get some innovation, but it's not going to be disruptive. It's only going to be around things that are conducive to maintaining the current right. market structure. Um, and innovation is something that the consumer welfare standard is also supposed to sure. be considering. Um, but innovation is harder to do this economic modeling on. And right. economists actually, um, they don't all agree with my perspective no, that the innovation uh, from a disruptive startup is more important than the innovation from an incumbent. Right. But I mean, this is sort of, right, I mean, I think a lot of people look back at when Facebook bought Instagram, right? And you'll say, okay, th- this was could potentially have been, as you were saying, a disruptive competitor in the social networking space. And instead, we just got like a like a bigger Facebook. Yeah. So I think one of the problems that antitrust struggles with is the potential competitor, like mm-hmm. a merger between a company and its potential competitor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how they saw Instagram at the time. They weren't able to predict or foresee where the social network market was going and right. see that this, at the time, photo sharing site is how Instagram was described. Um, it wasn't obvious to everyone the way it is to us now that a photo sharing site is a real potential competitor to a general social network like Facebook. Um, So I think what needs to change there is we need to incorporate the economic learning that we have about um, the concerns of under-enforcement versus Mm -hmm. Mm over-enforcement. So it's been uh, sort of accepted in antitrust law that over-enforcement is a bigger concern over-enforcement causes more trouble than under-enforcement. And I think that's wrong, and and economists increasingly believe this. The theory behind it was that barriers to entry, um, Mm -hmm. the difficulty of a new company coming in to compete, are typically low. Okay. And so if you end up with a monopoly by accident because of Uh under-enforcement, it's okay. New companies will come in. 
um, they'll be enticed by the high prices to enter. But we have found empirically that that hasn't really happened very much. So barriers to entry are actually much higher than we thought. Okay. And as a result, I think we need to update antitrust to understand that under-enforcement is a bigger concern than over-enforcement. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, right? Because it's like anything you do in life, you make some kind of mistakes, right? And so this is maybe one way – you talked about that the sort of retroactive study on mergers, right? Yeah. And so what that's showing is that in general – the agencies had erred on the side of being permissive. Right. And that was deliberate. Yes. I mean, of course, you try to get things right. Exactly. Everybody tries to get things right. But, but you those also bubble worry. cases. Right. Yeah. You, you, you have a concern, right? It's like, you know, I have a four-year-old, right? And so it's like with little kids, you like – you really err on the side of them, like, not falling off the cliff, <laughs> right? Yes. You're trying to be very, very protective, right? And the common sentiment was that you shouldn't worry too much about under-enforcement. Right. And that could potentially be, right, not like a – it wouldn't be a really provocative speech, but potentially a big deal, right? It's provocative in antitrust circles. <laughs> Okay, I mean, is it? I mean, is there is there discussion of this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I, that that would be interesting because I feel like a lot of the sort of public debate has like leapt to like like incredible conceptual leaps, right? But I, a part of what we're I, I guess part of what we're hearing here is that like there's a lot of I don't know there's like a lot of stuff in the nitty gritty yes. that could be could be changed and it actually makes a big difference. That's right. Um. So okay. So before I let you go, wrap this up. What else, what, what else should I have asked you? So, What are we really missing here? I want to go back to something that we talked about before. I think I didn't fully understand your question. When I was talking about non-discrimination and you said, um, but it, I, I think what you were saying is, is that enough for a uh, new entrant? You right. know, they, they don't just want to not be discriminated against. They want to actually be able to compete against the uh-huh. monopolist. So – Non-discrimination should actually have the added benefit of allowing that to happen. Okay. So the sort of economics of platforms is that a platform will identify that it could be um, disrupted by one of these smaller companies that relies on it. Um, So if we're talking about the case of Google, you know, there are websites that rely on Google in order to reach their consumers. Mm -hmm. Um, The theory here would be that Google could um, discriminate against them, not just for fun or to get more clicks on their map, Uh but specifically to prevent that company from ever one day being able to compete with Google. Because it starts with people are going to Google search and they're finding this other company. Right. But then people come to really like it, rely on it. That company starts adding more features. Exactly. And because Google does like a whole bunch of stuff and now this other company is also doing a bunch of stuff, now there's a competitor. Right. So that's one of the known ways that you can compete with platforms. It's really hard to compete with a platform. Uh But one of the ways that economists say that you should try to do it if that's what you as a small business are trying to do is to start in one vertical, start Mm -hmm. providing one product, and then slowly expand. And I think because everyone knows that that's the economic theory, you could also have platforms trying to block that from happening. Right. So so the idea is like a strong non-discrimination rule ultimately leaves you open to competition at the core. Yes, exactly. And that's what we need. Right. All right. (laughs) Um, I guess we've solved all these problems. Uh, I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> there's no, there's there's a ton more work to be done, but I I feel optimistic. Like people have good ideas, and and we're working on it. Okay, that's great. Um, so so thank you, uh, really for for your time, and uh, thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld. And, thank you. Uh, yeah, and the Weeze will be back on Tuesday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.